1 Samuel chapter 24. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened after da- afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut off Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stood, stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, 
and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that, without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. These are comforting words. These are words with power and iron in them, and I have read them in many places. Seven years ago, I read them on a tombstone from the 1600s of a Reformed Congregationalist minister, one of the very first in the state of Connecticut, who in his death wanted to still preach the gospel, and those words were engraved right on his tombstone. They are words that believers have held to for centuries. Generally, often, when the comfort of them is considered, it is in the context of death. What is your only comfort in death? Well, I'm not my own, but I belong to my Lord Jesus Christ who has purchased me. These words have given comfort to men on their dying bed for centuries, but... uh, That's not a complete balance to what's said. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And in life, my only comfort is I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my Lord Jesus Christ, who has purchased me. I belong to him. My comfort is I belong to him, not just when I draw my last breath, But as I live this life, day in and day out, as I go about the events of life, many of which are not terribly dramatic, my only comfort, regardless of what's going on, is I am not my own, but Jesus Christ has purchased me, the covenant has been ratified, I belong to the Lord in life, as well as death. You know, life can throw at you some pretty funny things. I emphasized that most of our life isn't terribly dramatic, but, you know, sometimes it is. Nobody envisions that their government will decide to wage war on them. Nobody expects to live in a time where the boiling waters of persecution from the state begin to get hotter and hotter and hotter, and you find yourself on the receiving end of a maniacal campaign to break down what God is doing, 
Nobody expects that to happen to them. But history is kind of replete with it happens from time to time. And the reason why I am bringing this forward is because the psalm which we just sang comes out of the historical event of which we just read. We sang it, we did not read it, but if we were to read the translation of it, this is what the, 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 the inscription says. To the chief musician set to do not destroy a miktam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. So what we were just singing about comes out of this event. David, effectively a nobody, who is in God's hand, is God's man, and we have watched him in the book of Samuel talk about the Lord and confess that he is God's man. He's talked with his friend Jonathan, and they have talked about being servants of the Lord. But who really comes out of nowhere and is a nobody is being chased by the state, by his government, to be killed because the state wants to kill him. And you just don't kind of expect that to happen, but it can. And sometimes it does. And in this particular case, it did. And what was going through the mind of our brother David at that moment? Well, we just sang about it. It was the psalm we sang. You are a servant of the Lord in dire circumstances. Uh, Where do you run for comfort? You're not dead. You're not dying. You are living, and you are living in dangerous times. Where do you seek comfort and solace? Well, David's words are right in line with the spirit of the catechism. It begins with, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. What is my only comfort in life? That I am not my own but I belong to my faithful Savior. The psalmist echoes and says, Amen. I am pursued by a wicked government. I am pursued by persecution. Where will I turn for comfort? I will turn to you. I will seek the safety of your feathers. I will be like a chick fleeing for protection. I will turn in refuge to you, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful, says David twice. I'm sure you will not be surprised to learn that the word mercy here is hesed, which is one of the most important words in the Bible. It is God's attribute of being in covenant with us, God's attribute of being the greater to our lesser and bringing us to himself David says, what comfort do I have in life and in death? Lord, I turn to your mercy, to your loving kindness, to your promise to me to be my God. And David emphasizes it a number of times in this psalm. It's in verse 1, as I just read. Verse 3 says, um, 
3C. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth, his hesed. And then towards the end of the psalm, in verse 10, David hits the idea again. For your mercy, your hesed, reaches unto the heavens, and your truth unto the clouds. When I am truly, truly in physical distress, when men honestly are persecuting me and I'm in danger, where do I find comfort? I find comfort in mercy, in loving kindness, in my relationship to you. Lord, be merciful to me. Be merciful. And the human response to the fact that God is faithful to his covenant, to us in his promises, is that we are to trust and seek refuge in him. In times of persecution and true distress, in times when men rise up against God's church, and it's not a cold war, it's a hot war, the initial human response is to ask, what can we do to protect ourselves? What strategy, what what weapons of war can we bring to the table? Because now it is a time for conflict. There's a time and a place for that. But the psalmist sends us to God. God alone. God is our refuge. God is our strength. His feathers are there to seek refuge under. If he is on our side, no weapon can prosper against us. If he is not on our side, then those who watch the city watch the city in vain. And those who labor to build the house labor in vain to build it. So the psalmist turns to God's said with trust and seeking refuge. This is where the believer first goes. Not to strategy, not to planning, though there's time for that. He turns to God's covenant faithfulness. And he turns to a covenant faithfulness that actually manifests as God doing things in the world. Occasionally, certain wings of God's church accuse we Reformed people of not believing in God's actions. We do tend to downplay the miraculous. We don't expect miracles every day, and we have reason for that. If you go to the Scripture, miracles don't happen every day. In fact, whole generations go by in Scripture, and no actual miracle seems to manifest. And that's even true in the lives of very significant people. But we are slandered when they say we do not believe that God acts in the world. We are a very spiritual people who expect God to act, and on a daily basis, but we expect him to act as we see him acting here in this historical moment. We have taken a name to name it, I guess you could call it something else, but we call it providence, and we believe very firmly in it. We believe that God is present in the world everywhere, and God is not just watching, God is not just taking note, but God is active and doing things. He is working by providence. One 
man described providence as when God works a miracle, but he doesn't sign his name. That's actually not a bad way of putting it. It is miracle without special effect. It is God at work using his natural laws, but very much God doing it, and God arranging for things to happen. And David flees to God in verse 2 and 3, where he says, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. We live in a day, and there's been other days like this, where practically many Christians are effectively deists. They have an understanding of God, and they may understand the doctrines of their church, and they may live an intellectual life in the Christian faith, but in reality, they don't expect to see God doing things. They live as though God were merely watching from afar. And, you know, heaven helps those who help themselves, so let's get cracking because God's not going to do anything. That's not a Christian attitude. That's deism. God is very much here. God is very much doing things. God can be counted upon by those who belong to him. God's providence will act. He will act for his people. He will do what he promises. He will make things happen in time and space. That is the comfort for one who believes in the Lord. This providence, this acting for his people, will in fact prefer his covenant people to other people. It will be exclusive. It will be discriminatory in the best sense. God will choose his own and he will act for them. I read the first half of verse 3, but the, the, the middle half says, He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Now, who is the one reproaching? Well, we have already seen the historical event this is talking about. It's talking about King Saul. King Saul is the anointed king of Israel. He is the government, and he's also a religious leader because king is an office in God's church, and he has power, and he knows how to talk religion. We have watched him do that as we've gone through 1 Samuel. He knows how to say, the Lord bless you, and you have been kind to me in the Lord. He knows how to play a religious game, but he is one of only two people I can think of that God has looked in the eye and said, you know that election thing where I choose my own? You're not part of it. We have watched God tell Saul, you will be accursed. You will be damned. And he is the king of Israel, and he has the armies of Israel behind him, and he has the ability to make power and the ability to make trouble. But we have watched God clearly say to him, you are not mine. And David takes comfort in the fact that God, because he is a covenant-making God, will prefer his own. 
You will accomplish things for me, says David. You are against the one who is against me. You absolutely take sides. You decide for your people. You decide for me. I'm not my own. I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who will, in fact, make all things work for my salvation. Not a hair of my head will fall unless God wills it, and you will work all things for my salvation. You will assure me of eternal life. You will take hold of me. In a real situation, in a real persecution, in a real day of trouble, where does the saint flee to? He flees to the covenant God who prefers him and will take care of him and will take him to himself and will act for him because of his loving kindness. Providence though it is a word that we have coined for a phenomenon, is for the psalmist one of the major points of this psalm. You will notice that twice in the psalm you have that little word, Selah. It's inserted where the psalmist wants you to stop and to consider and to really think about what's said. The very first one is after those words we just looked at. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Now you stop singing for a few minutes, you stop talking, and you let the echo of those words echo in your mind. He will reproach him who reproaches me because I belong to him. He will accomplish things for me. Stop singing and think. God loves his own and his providence is real. Stop and consider. God is for us. When something like this happens, it is a moment for praise. And interestingly, it's a moment of uh, definition. Many times in Scripture, you will have that imagery that we have in this psalm. They dug a pit for me, but they fell into their own pit. That seems to be a major biblical theme. What does that look like? Well, because this psalm is about this event, we have actually a picture of what it looks like. It is, by what appears happenstance, a powerful man in need of relief, goes into a cave to do those things that are natural for the body, and his enemy, who is God's person, just happens to be hiding in that cave, and uh, providence has set him up. Nobody planned that. David didn't say, I'm going to go hide in this cave so I can ambush Saul, and that's actually part of the, the tension of the historic moment Uh, I didn't set this up, but suddenly Saul is in my hand. What do I do? And for David, it's a moment to see if he'll be faithful or not, because even when God makes you promises, receiving those promises has to be a matter of your faithfulness. 
his men paraphrase a number of things that have been said to David. They don't quote anything directly, but they say, oh, you know, God said he'll deliver your enemy into your hand to do anything you want to to him. There's actually no quote in Scripture where God actually said it quite like that. And David has to decide, will I stretch out my hand and take what I want, what God has promised me, but in a way that is not faithful, or will I not? And so for David, it is a, uh, a chance to see if he'll be faithful, and he passes test. But for Saul, it is a matter of he has dug a pit and God pushed him in it. He has been set up and no human hand has made it happen. When you read about they have dug a pit but they have fallen into it, think about 1 Samuel 24. That's what it looks like. It's when God's providence works for his people. And just who is Saul really? I have already spoken of his dark qualities, but the psalm talks about him as being in a particular category. Um, Verse 4 gives us that category. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. The historical moment is dangerous indeed. It is not uh, something light and airy like I get made fun of because I'm a Christian. This is real persecution. This is real danger. This is the loss of livelihood and liberty and possible death. And why is it so dangerous? It's because Saul belongs to a certain category of beings that are some of the most dangerous and terrible beings that you will find in creation. He is part of a subset of reality that is black as night and wicked to the core. He is part of, quote, the sons of men, or the way the Hebrew puts it is, a son of Adam. And in fact, when you read in Hebrew scriptures, sons of men, 99% of the time, that's actually what it is, a son of Adam. Saul is a terrible beast. He is dangerous. He is like a chimera that breathes fire and has venom and is a terrible predator because he's descended from Adam. And scripture says these descendants of Adam are terrible things. But David is not one of them. He is actually of a different family. In Psalm 14, the psalmist, again David, uh, makes a distinction between the sons of men and his people. Psalm 14 reads, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men, the sons of men, same, same phrase in the Hebrew, to see if there is any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? So David talks about there being a group of human beings who are descended from Adam, and they are distinct from his people. Uh, They are not descendants of Adam. 
This is not talking about our physical descent. It's talking about our covenant relationship. We are sons of somebody else by adoption. But those sons of Adam, those who are really in Adam's family, you really need to avoid those guys because they can be totally dangerous. They can be more wicked than any other beasts that walk the earth. But God prefers his own in such a jungle. God will send forth his hased. God will send forth his mercy and truth. He will protect his church. He will protect his people, even surrounded by so wicked of beings as Adam's sons. God is presented in contrast to the sons of Adam. The verse I read was verse 4, but verse 5 follows directly on it. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. The Psalms do this several places. They will present what human beings are really like, and then they will present what God is like, And in the contrast to the darkness, God's utter brightness shines, if it could, even brighter. Man is a beast with spears for teeth. But God, you be exalted, you be glorified, because you are absolutely the opposite. You are the God who uh, will send forth your deliverance, and you did. We know the story, we just heard it. God delivered David. God gave him a massive victory without uh, rebelling against God in this particular case. It was a massive victory, even more powerful because David was faithful, and God acted, and the beasts, the, the sons of Adam, were utterly shamed because God acted. Uh, it is only right and only proper that when such an event take place, we praise and glorify God. Just like in every other action of life, even those not dramatic. I meant to bring John Calvin's catechism, the Geneva Catechism. I don't have it with me, but you didn't have to make a slide of it, did you? I did not. I didn't see that. Well, I'll paraphrase. Calvin, at the beginning of that catechism, says, what is the the chief end of man, and his answer is to know God. And then uh, he asks, what is the right knowledge of knowing God? And it's so that you know him in order to praise him and glorify him because God created you and he placed you in this world. He is your origin. You are literally designed to glorify and praise God. And what happens if that doesn't happen? Well, the catechism goes on to say men are worse off than beasts if they are not living to the praise and the glory of God. David should praise God in every event. When David washes laundry, he should praise God. When David uh, disciples his children, he should praise God. When David washes the car, he should praise God. But if that's the case, how much more when in a real moment of persecution and in a moment of disaster, God's hand works for us 
that calls for the praise of God like nobody's business. And that's exactly where our psalm goes to. After Saul has fallen into his own pit, David says this. Once I turn my page. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. When God brings a moment of persecution upon his church, many things are happening. There are passages that tell us that when you have wicked rulers, uh, God is actually punishing his church, and you should never forget that. Uh, Judgment begins at the house of God, and if you are watching society fall apart and God's purposes seem to be under attack, God is not primarily punishing the nations, he is waking up his church. But more is happening than that. So much more. Oftentimes, God allows moments of darkness for him to work. God allows moments of of trial where we have no answer for him to work his providence. God does this that we may have even greater reason to praise and glorify him. And David recognizes that. And Saul has fallen into his own pit. Where does David go? He goes to his harp and lyre, and the first thing he begins to do is give praise to God because this is a penultimate opportunity to do that, and he does. And in doing so, he is being evangelistic. When we think of evangelism, we tend to think about sharing an outline of the gospel with people who don't know it, and we're not wrong. That is very definitely evangelism, and it should be done. But I am reminded of Nietzsche's quote, Nietzsche hated Christianity, but in one sort of unprotected moment, Nietzsche said, I would give credence to the Savior if his people seemed more saved. And what he was saying was, he looked among God's people and he did not see gratitude and praise and thanksgiving and worship. He looked at us and he said, if if that's a saved people, how should they be acting? Well, they should be breaking forth in songs of praise and glory. When they see God's hand at work, and they should see his hand at work, they should be awakening the dawn. They should be grabbing for their instruments. They should be praising God because that's what we're made to do, and Nietzsche said, I don't really see that. But the corollary of that was, Nietzsche was saying, if I did see that, I'd take it as an evidence. David says, I will praise you for what you have done today at this cave. I will sing praise to you in front of the peoples and the nations. It will be a message to the peoples and the nations whose God is faithful to his people. Our God. I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to do it so everybody hears it. And they're going to realize I'm a saved person. I have known said. I have known it practically. said takes place in this world as well as the next. 
God has laid hold of my circumstances, and he has accomplished everything for me, and I'm going to praise God for that. That can only be seen as a form of evangelism. Now, what is really happening here in this event at the cave? It is that Saul is persecuting a man by the name David. He has reason to hate that man, and he is trying to off him. But is that what the totality of this event is? Well, no. If we allow the book of Psalms to speak to us again, we could turn to Psalm 2 and The psalmist here would talk about kings like Saul, governments, rulers, and the psalmist would say this, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against who? Against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Why is Saul persecuting David? Well, he's trying to stop God's anointed, which David is. God has anointed David king of Israel. Saul doesn't want that to happen. It is God's purposes, and Saul is trying to thwart them. He is is attempting to thwart the anointed of God. As Psalm 2 goes on, we read, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, which is not the response of somebody who's threatened. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet have I set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God speaks to the anointed one as we go on. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. What is Saul trying to do? He is trying to stop God's kingdom which at this moment is vested on David. But even that is not the totality of everything happening here, because David is not the actual promised anointed one. David will be promised, if you are faithful, I will place one of your sons on the throne of Israel forever. Well, that promise becomes very specific in Jeremiah There will be a son of David who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Uh, Not just, I'll have a, a series of descendants, but there will be the branch our righteousness. He will sit forever on the throne. He will be my king. Uh, The kings of the earth don't like that. The kings of the earth recognize what Christians often don't, that when we call Jesus king of kings and lord of lords, We're quoting the scripture, and the scripture means it. It means that Jesus is over every king. Jesus is over every lord. He is a king. He is a ruler. 
we will bow to him first over anyone else. Christians don't necessarily think that way, but the rulers know we're supposed to, and they don't like it. They want to oppose the rule of Jesus Christ. They want to oppose the true son of David. They want to oppose the kingdom. They don't really care much about you at all. You're kind of in the way, but they're actually against Jesus, and that's why they're doing what they're doing. And the one in heaven shall laugh, because this is about our Lord Jesus Christ. And the early church certainly took these psalms that way. If you turn to Acts chapter 4, you have an event where uh, the apostles have healed a man in the name of Jesus Christ, and the rulers and authorities haven't liked it much. They have told them to stop preaching Jesus Christ. And we take up the story in Acts um, chapter 4 at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You're the creator. You're God. Everything belongs to you. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said... Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that they may with all boldness speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What's the book of Psalms about, says the early church? Well, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his rule. And why can David say, you will accomplish things for me, you'll accomplish everything for me? Uh, It's the same reason that we can say that. It's because God is working to establish his son, Jesus Christ, and God will not be thwarted, and we are part of the kingdom God will establish us by his hesed because he has hesed with somebody much more important than us. He has hesed with his son. And the world, when it brings its persecution, when it brings its attack on God's people, whether directly or indirectly, it is not attacking God's people. It is attacking the anointed of the Lord because it doesn't want Christ to rule. But David believes God will act in time and space. David believes God will actually do things. That God will be faithful to his promises. This will not just be a philosophical thing. That God will thwart the powerful. And the rulers of the earth, by the way, may even be church rulers. The apostles have been confronted by the Sanhedrin. But the apostles apply Psalm 2 to them. They are 
in the visible church, but they are as much wicked rulers as Herod is a wicked ruler, as Pontius Pilate is a wicked ruler, the kings of the earth may in fact have crosses on their foreheads. But that doesn't make them any less a wicked ruler. And the church identified them as fighting God, and the church identified Jesus Christ as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we will bow to him first. We will bow to him over any king of the earth. We will bow to him if we are called upon to judge between him and anybody else. We will bow to him. And the book of Psalms is about him, about his kingdom, and the world is fighting him. That's what's happening at the cave. You're seeing God fight the kings of the earth. His providence defeats Saul, and God never changes. And God has not let loose of his world. If you see persecution, if you feel afflicted, you're not wrong. But God is present, and he is not silent, and he will act, and God will establish his kingdom He will bring to nothing the rulers of the earth, just as he brought down Saul. And we will be there praising God because God is faithful. We will awaken the dawn with our praise because that is what we are made to do. And God will never allow himself to lose his kingdom.